Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather as your children and encourage one another in our mutual salvation and learn what you have said, what your ways are, how you deal with us, and what we need to believe. Help us believe and obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 7.55, Stephen, in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, do you remember last week what standing signified? Judgment and then also legal advocacy. Legal advocacy. So it's a courtroom setting. Eric, do you have anything to add, please? You know, one thing I thought of, I couldn't remember the reference, but there's a reference in the book of James at the end. If I can turn to it here, James 5, I think it's verse 9. And it talks about the oh, yeah. judge standing right at the door. Yes. Let's see, oh, I got the wrong reference. It's somewhere in the, in the James 5 here. But anyway, the, the reference is to the judge standing at the door. And it has, just as Bob is saying, this judicial reference that Jesus Christ is this judge. He's standing at the door. And it really speaks to, again, the doctrine of imminence because at any time he's going to come through the door. <laughs> it's that right. sort of and idea. And then when he does come, he's going to bring judgment on his enemies Amen. and salvation to his people. So the coming of the judge signifies division. I'm sorry, it is James 5, 9. The judge is standing at the door. Yep. James 5, 9. Yes, uh, Mike, who has the mic? Oh, here, we got one. Just a quick quick aside. In Re Revelation, I believe it's the Church of Laodicea, when it says, stands at the door and knock, that would be kind of a judgment thing too, wouldn't it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Eric, why don't you talk about that verse and, and how it's misused? Yeah, um, th what's interesting is the standing at the door and knocking. A lot of time it's been used as if poor Jesus is locked on the outside of our hearts. And what we have to do is to open our heart and let him in. But what there's, what John is using is irony because the irony is that Jesus is outside their fellowship. So when you have fellowship in the ancient Near East, you let someone in your home. And so the irony is the church of Laodicea is supposed to be this church that belongs to Christ, but he's on the outside of their fellowship. They have so little to do with him, they don't even recognize that he's not even within the assembly. He's so on the outside. So it's not an invitation per se, as the Arminians would have you believe, that you have to open your heart. It's really the idea that, look, you've so excluded Jesus, you don't even have fellowship with him anymore. So I hope that helps. They even referenced the picture. Oh, you notice the picture, there's no doorknob. Right. <laughs> That's a good way to make theology. Right, right. <laughs> the, picture. You, you, the picture was not inspired. <laughs> so that's where we were last time. Legal advocacy is what standing signifies. And here we have the judgment of hardening 
coming on the Jewish leadership and salvation coming to Stephen. There's a division. Eric, could you read Acts 7.56? It says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Amen. Now, this um, tells us that Stephen is a great man of God. He's acceptable to God. He is being vindicated by God, even though he's being executed by what really amounts to a mob action. And uh, Jesus is there to receive Stephen. Now, I have some other passages. Eric, you can be my reader. Sure. I don't have a lot of voice today. Gotcha. Isaiah 3, 13 and 14. Where's the other mic? Brian, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is Isaiah 3, 13 through 14. It says, The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Isn't that interesting? God stands to judge. Who's being judged? The elders. So Jesus is standing, and who's coming under judgment is the Sanhedrin. They're supposed to be the ones dispensing justice, but they're wicked. They rejected Christ had him crucified. Now they're rejecting someone Christ sent, that being Stephen. Now, Stephen not only sees the heavens open, he sees the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen. Now... Let's discuss, I have it in red on my slide, Son of Man. There's sort of a double entendre going on. This could be a reference to Daniel. I think it is. And this Son of Man in Daniel comes with authority, and he has dominion over even all the nations. Now, that hasn't happened yet. But if you look at the Gospels, for example, Mark, Jesus is called the Son of Man. Now, in Jewish usage, son of can mean characterized by. Okay? So 
it's either a reference to Daniel or saying the one characterized by mannishness. Okay? Or both. And so I think both are implied. Jesus is fully human and fully God. But in the New Testament, he's called the last Adam. Do you want to discuss this a little bit, Eric? Well, the last Adam, mannishness, Messiah, the gospel of Mark. This is a test. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I'll try to make you proud. (laughs) Yeah, in in the book of Mark, uh, Bob's absolutely right. Son of man is his favorite self-designation. And interestingly enough, we're coming to this section where in Romans 5, 12, all the way through verse 21, Jesus is depicted as the new Adam. And so the first Adam, our first representative, he brought condemnation to the whole human race. And so what God works by is he works by what we call federal headship, where he imputes Adam's sin to us. And so that's why we're born sinners. That's why David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he didn't have to work his way into being a sinner. He was born a sinner. Why? Because God imputed the first Adam's sin to him, and then he actualized it when he sinned, and we all do. So we're all born with a sin nature because of our first Adam, but Jesus is the new Adam. And what Bob is getting at is the reason why he's called the Son of Man is he has to represent us. Yes, he's truly God. He obviously has dominion, but here's the, the, the man par excellence. He was the man that none of us could be. He was the man who could live the righteous life that none of us ever could. And so the reason it's his favorite self-designation, it's really the idea of substitution. He does for his people what they can never do for themselves. And so he's the true Israel. He's the true man that Israel never was, that Adam never was. And so that's all tied in to what Bob's saying here. Did that help? You get it, A. Okay. <laughs> if, you, Thank you. if you drink coffee, yeah. we get you some. <laughs> it's Bob's tutelage. So. Very good. See? The idea of federal headship. In Adam, what does this say? First Corinthians 15, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. Not all people, but all who are in Christ. We are in Adam by being born into this world. We're Adamic. We're in Christ by being born again. So the Son of Man is also the new Adam who succeeded perfectly where Adam had failed. Son of man, Messiah, our representative. So Stephen, after his message was rejected by the leadership of Israel, now is coming to see here Messiah standing at the right hand of God. I was going to quote Dr. Polehill's commentary on Acts from the New American Commentary series. The view with the most far-reaching implications, however, says Polehill, is that Stephen's vision links up with the original Son of Man vision in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where the Son of Man is depicted as standing before 
the Ancient of Days. The primary role of the Danielic Son of Man was that of judgment. The New Testament consistently depicts Christ in this role of eschatological judge. Then he references Matthew 25, 31 to 46. The standing position, says Paul Hill, may thus depict the exalted Christ in his role of judge. If so, Stephen's vision not only confirmed his testimony, but it showed Christ rising to render judgment on his accusers. They, not he, Stephen, were the guilty parties. In Daniel 7.14, the Son of Man has given dominion for all peoples, nations, men of every language. This is a further implication of Stephen's Son of Man vision that it ties in well with his understanding of God as not being bound to one nation or people. It is a vision of the boundless reign of Christ, which was soon to begin the Samaritan mission of Stephen's fellow Hellenist, Philip. See, Acts 1.8 is programmatic and is being fulfilled. After the Sanhedrin rejects the gospel, rejects Stephen, and martyrs Stephen, the next place the gospel goes is to Samaria. And we'll, we'll be talking about that. It says in Luke 23, 45, it says the sun was obscured, excuse me, was obscured and the veil of the temple torn in two. We've talked about that. There's access to the holiest place. The very heavens are open. The Son of Man is there to bring salvation, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with himself to any who will believe on him. But what happened to Stephen is a little foreshadowing of how followers of Christ will be treated in this world. Okay? I'm always, always, always preparing a sermon. Right now I'm working on one for late in June. And it's on 1 John 2 where it says, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. And there's so much there, I don't know how I'm going to preach it all. But what John says in 1 John, and what we see in the high priestly prayer in John 17, and what we see throughout the Bible, is that to believe in Christ and to reject the lusts of the world and live for the will of God, there's uh, a dividing line. There's a chasm. And we're believing 
speaking, trusting, behaving in an entirely different way than the world. And because of that, the world will hate us. And one thing I'm going to do, however many Sundays it's going to take, is explain carefully what it means to be in the world, but not of it. Does it mean joining a monastery? And I'm going to say no. And we'll, we'll, we'll delve deeply into the scriptures to see how we can go about life, raise our families, work our jobs, live in this world, and still not be of the world and live for Christ. And I will share my story of how I tried to do it the wrong way and how careful study of a Greek lexicon solved the problem for me. Eric and I have been doing radio, and we're claiming that scholarship is helping us understand the gospel and the text. And those anti-intellectuals who say dumb Christians are good Christians don't understand the gospel. If you see Stephen and what he was able to preach, he was brilliant. The illusions, the things that he strings together, how he explained the truth, how he used the history of Israel to convict the most brilliant scholars that they had. And he brought their learning to nothing. But scholarship is not an enemy. I'll be talking about that when I talk about being in the world but not of it and how God used access to scholarship to help me get away from a horrible error that I'd entered into when I misunderstood what that meant. Now we come to Stephen's confrontation with the angry mob. This is not a legal proceeding following the course of the way things should be. This is portrayed in Acts as a mob action, a mob action. People get angry, and they go over the top, and horrible things happen. We're starting to see that in America. Have you noticed? Just somebody's ideas are such that people could, would kill if they could. And they're angry, and they're throwing things, and they're just, just mere ideas they can't tolerate. And when we are learning, being over the top with emotions never helps. It won't lead us to the right conclusion. We, as Christians, need to be sober-minded. Sober-minded is an attribute in the New Testament. Being angry and forming a mob is bad, and we don't need to do that. Stephen was calm. The mob was angry, and Stephen appealed to Christ and the gospel. Acts 7.57, they cried out with a loud voice, 
and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Now, the combination, crying out as loud as they could, covering their ears, they weren't even able to hear one more thing Stephen had to say. It's interesting. I'm going to show you this. I love Luke Acts. You know that. I've been teaching Luke Acts back to about 2005. And one of the themes of Luke Acts is forgiveness of sins. And when God, the gospel is preached, what is preached is the offer of forgiveness of sins. But these people, they couldn't hear that. Stephen couldn't preach forgiveness of sins. He didn't get that far because now they're screaming, covering their ears. They don't want to hear about forgiveness. They want him dead. So what we're going to see is that Stephen will appeal to somebody who will listen. And he says to God, forgive them. Do not hold this against them. Who else did that? Jesus. Okay, they don't want to hear that God will forgive their sins. But Stephen is a righteous man, and he appeals to God on this issue of forgiveness. If what Stephen said was true, they knew they stood condemned. They were incapable of refuting his arguments. They couldn't stand that Stephen was better at handling Tanakh than they were, because they were the experts. This was not a legal action. I think I mentioned last week when they took Jesus and they were going to throw him off a cliff or down a hill in Luke 4, what it tells us in Mishnah is that they wanted to be humane when they stoned. So they'd throw someone down and get the biggest boulder they could move and drop it on them with the hope that the one boulder would instantly kill the person rather than the torture of being pelted with smaller stones and dying gradually. So stoning was to be done in a humane way. That's what they wanted to do to Jesus in Luke 4. But he just walked out of there. They couldn't stop him. So here, they're not going to do that. They're going to start throwing the stones. This was a mob action. They wanted to silence him forever. They were tired of this gospel. They'd already heard it from Peter. And now they're hearing it from Stephen. And they were sick of it. And they didn't want to hear any more about it. They'd heard it from Jesus. So they formed a mob, shouted, stopped their ears. They couldn't hear a word that he was going to preach. And they could not tolerate the truth. Nothing makes people more angry than the truth when they don't believe it. Okay. You tell people lies, oh, okay, whatever. But you tell them the truth, they get really 
angry. And sometimes as Christians, they get really angry. I got a nice, encouraging email this morning. I want to share just just of it. I, I checked it before I came to church. It was from a pastor who was preparing a sermon yesterday and had found one of my articles. And it was about why the human will cannot overcome sin. And that's what he wanted to preach on. So I got a nice, encouraging email. Thank you, said, dear brother. This is just what I'm going to preach on. And and your, your article is just right. We need God to save us. We can't, by willpower, overcome our own sin. Part of the problem with thinking that you can is to look at this. They're an irrational mob. They're not sitting there, I think I can overcome this sin. They don't even want to. They just want Stephen dead. They have no will to overcome it. That comes after God's grace. Saul is going to be an example. He's introduced here soon and is going to be a key person later. He didn't overcome sin. All he willed to do was to attack Christians, incite mobs against them, and throw them in jail. But in Acts, how was it that Saul becomes Paul? He meets Christ. Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he's sovereignly converted. So I we preach the gospel. Eric again, 758. It says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. Luke's literary technique is to introduce people in the narrative who later become important. He does that over and over. So Saul's here. So if you never heard the gospel, never read Luke Acts, and you lived in first century, and you somehow were able to read this, you get to this point, Saul. Okay? Young man named Saul. That's interesting. I wonder why he's here. I wonder why he's called by name. Well, we're going to find out. He'll become a key character throughout the rest of Acts. They wanted to stone Jesus, as I said in Luke 4, but could not. I mentioned this idea they put him down a cliff, dropped the biggest rock on him they could, try to kill him in one shot. I was going to quote Paul Hill again. Quote, also, the picture of Stephen stoning does not fit what is known of Jewish execution by stoning. According to the Mishnah, Sanhedrin 6, 1 through 6, that's in case you have Mishnah, stoning took place outside the city, and the actual stoning was done by those who had witnessed against the condemned person. So if you got up and said, I'm a witness, this person did something guilty of death, and he's convicted based on 
the witness's testimony, they have to own it. They have to participate in the execution. Okay. Quote, again, Paul Hill. These details fit the present scene, but they are about all that does. In formal stonings, victims were stripped, pushed over a cliff 10 to 12 feet high. They were then rolled over on their chests, and the first witness pushed a boulder as large a stone as he could manage from the cliff above. In the unlikely event the victim survived this first smashing, the second witness was to roll a second boulder from above. The picture, says Paul Hill, of Stephen Stoning is radically different. He was not stripped. The witnesses stripped, evidently to give them greater freedom for throwing. It's doubtful Stephen could have knelt or uttered prayers after being pounded by a huge boulder from 10 feet above. The picture in Acts is of an angry mob pelting Stephen with stones. So this was out of the ordinary, and it was a mob action. They hated him. They couldn't stand what he was saying, and they wanted to be rid of him. And so they're throwing stones, and this is going to be a slower, more painful death than what was called for. So if you read Luke Acts, your mind should go back to Luke 4 and the fact that they wanted to stone Jesus but weren't allowed to do so because he was going to die crucifixion. Any comments or questions? I thought about mentioning this earlier, but I wasn't sure. Um, on the subject of mobs, I read a book years ago uh, normally, I wouldn't recommend a book. You know, it's it's a secular book by Ann Coulter. It's called Demonic, and she mentions mobs. That's what the book is all about. The French Revolution was a huge. Uh, she makes a statement: everyone should study the French Revolution. But when I listen to what we're talking about here, mobs really. Uh, you could almost make a rule of thumb as when you have a mob acting, that there is a demonic aspect to it, possibly. You know, it's just you, almost as a rule of thumb, if there's a mob, you know, people whooping up, a, whipping up a mob, yeah. emotional thing, that I could almost as a rule of thumb just figure that, number one, that they're wrong and that it's, it's, it's bad. You well, know. see, and also mobs reinforced a culture that's based on revenge. Exactly. Okay. And we do see more of that nowadays. We see it in the Middle East. Yep. Think about this, okay? If you want to study these things out here in the world we live in, if you look at the Middle East, Israel Mm -hmm. now is not like they were then. Yeah. Yeah. See, their leadership back then was part of a mob. Now, Israel is civilized, and they have a system of government that's more like what Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 17 and elsewhere, rule of law. So if you look at the Middle East, and you look at Israel, and you look at 
the difference between Israel and her neighbors is this, one main point. Israel now is under the rule of law. And even somebody that disagrees with them gets a day in court, like they would here in America. The different tribal people around Israel are still mob-ruled. And it's all about revenge. And so when you see, for example, shooting whatever they got, rockets, throwing stones, they're still doing that. The Arab peoples around Israel are still pagan, mob-ruled peoples, always looking for revenge. Whereas Israel has a law system that they practice where you have appeals, you have defense attorneys, and what have you. And America is civilized, they're supposed to be, like Israel, Western civilization. And we have our day in court. And we have laws to protect people from false accusations. And it's a civilized way. But what we're seeing is more and more people in America who don't want civilization. They want the mob. And they think they're going to gain power by being mob-motivated. And that's exactly what they're doing. And they hate people like judges, police officers, or anybody that represents the rule of law. We're going to have a riot. And that's how we get what we want. And it's a way of going back to paganism. Who has the mic? Say, Bob, um, part of this, too, there was a book written called Rules for Radicals. Uh, It was written by Saul Alinsky. And Saul Alinsky out of Chicago was uh, someone who was extremely uh, knowledgeable on mobs and trying to create uh, really exactly what's going on now. So this isn't new, you know, in the French Revolution, obviously, but Saul Alinsky. Then what's interesting is the thesis uh, that uh, she wrote her thesis on, it was Hillary Clinton, not to be political, but uh, community organizers, too, which uh, Obama also was trying to do that, too, which was understanding that these are the rules for the radicals. Yeah. And this is how we get... You uh, incite mobs. In, incite the mobs, get In all this In that way, you reject Western civilization. That's exactly what's going on in the exactly. world. Exactly. And that's why they hate Israel, because Israel sits in the middle of mob-ruled nations as a beacon of Western civilization. Uh, back in 19... 19- and back in 1940, there was a guy named Louis Lemoore who wrote a Western called the Oxbow, or Oxbow Incident. And it was nothing but the mob mentality. But he, he uh, did it so well that apparently it was picked up by Herman Hess and the Third Reich picked it up. And they used some of the techniques and therefore had a lot of the uh, mob mentality. Yeah, for, sort of for yeah. But let me ask you a quick question, if I may. Um, are you saying that those of us who are in the word uh, could by um, on the viewpoint of other people, consider us a mob? Well, no, not if we behave like Stephen and Paul. Good question, though. Let's do a preview. I love Luke Acts. You know that about me. <laughs> Luke Acts reviews and previews. Reviews and previews. 
So you got to look at the repeated themes. Okay, here, Saul, part of a mob. Then he's converted. And he goes around preaching the gospel. And as we go through Acts, toward the end, starting in Acts 21, Paul, the gospel preacher, becomes subjected to mob action. Okay, so now he's civilized. And he's preaching Christ. The mob was to kill Saul. Okay, and the Roman Empire was more civilized than the mob. They had rules. Okay, so Saul, who becomes Paul, who preaches the gospel, now becomes the one who's attacked like Stephen was. Okay, and so what does Paul do? I appeal to Rome. He used the processes of Western civilization. I appeal to Rome. And everywhere they took him, he got in front of dignitaries, and what did he do? He preached the gospel. One of my favorite is in Acts 26. I absolutely love Acts 26, 18. I promise you, I'm going to preach Acts 26, 18 till the ink starts wearing out on my Bible. I love that verse. From darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. And so Paul ends up in Rome and people are coming and going from his quarters hearing the gospel. As Christians, we should be in favor of civilization. It's grounded in Moses. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses said that when you get a king, which of course wasn't God's idea, here's what your king is to do. He used to get a copy of this law and read it. The king has to sit there and be under the law. The king is not an autonomous lawgiver. He's under law that was given by God. Now that's been near and dear to us in America. That even the president has to be under law. So in my lifetime, for example, Richard Nixon decided he didn't have to be under law. He decided, I'm so popular, I'm so powerful, I can do anything I want, and I'm going to do dirty tricks. Remember that? Well, some of you can remember, some of you are too young. But he had his dirty tricks department. And he pulled all these things. But he ended up being faced with law, and he resigned. And he resigned. Now, I don't know if that can happen anymore, because at this point, we have people wanting to be above the law, and people want to vote for him. Yeah, you know, it's interesting in our culture, equality on the left, and this ties into what you're getting at back there, Tom, the equality for the left 
means you have equal outcome in everything you do, whether it's economics, what have you. Well, what's interesting is equality in the Christian model is equality under the law. Yeah. There's no one to be above the law. So they equivocate on that and they say, well, equality isn't under the law. It's you all have to own the same stuff, which ends up leading everyone's poor, you know. Well, <laughs> but, uh, if you want to know the outcome of that, do a study on the contemporary situation in Venezuela. Yeah, exactly. You owe it right. to yourself. Go look it up on Google or Bing or whatever you use. Venezuela, now, and see what happens when you don't really have the rule of law. Okay, Brian. The sad thing about what Eric was referring to is that these ideas uh, grow and uh, propagate themselves in our public school system. It's it it's they they they're pounding this stuff in our kindergartners, and uh, it takes them right. I mean, look at look at the college campuses now. I mean, they need uh, safe zones with Play-Doh and cuddly toys. Yeah, and you can't have idea. You know what? Personally, I always thrived in going against everybody else. Honestly, who was I telling about when I studied the economics? Was it wasn't here? Was it? No, it was Gene, was it you? I'm getting old. I can't remember who I was talking to. Maybe I was talking to myself. I was in an economics class taught by President Nixon's economic advisor to Taiwan. And he was a brilliant economic, uh, economics guy. And I was in his class. And I was promoting the ideas of Milton Friedman, if you remember him. So anyhow, we gave speeches, as I did, I gave speeches, debated the teacher, the students. Although the teacher, I think we were kind of on the same page. So finally, one time, I was using Friedman kind of idea of, of economics. Back then, if you're old enough to remember the cartoons where they showed schools, busting at the seams. Too many kids, not enough teachers. Post-World War II, baby boom. So the government was paying people to go to college to be teachers. If you want to go to college to be an engineer, you're on your own. If you want to go to college to be a teacher, government will pay you to do it. Well, that was still going on. And so I stood up and spoke against that in class. I said, the government's meddling with something and the outcome will be bad and people decide if they want to be teachers or not on their own and we shouldn't be giving people money for doing that so I'm saying this and here's a young lady another Iowa State student she's crying she starts crying well but she was getting money to go there to be a teacher well, I couldn't be here. And she was crying. I thought, oh, man, I'm making the girls cry. Typical Bob, huh? Bad. And so I decided, uh, well, I better just keep my mouth shut. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But the teacher actually didn't want that. So anyhow, we had this other discussion going on a couple classes later. And I just sat there. Oh, oh sat there. Finally... The teacher says, okay, Mr. D-Way, drop your bomb. 
okay, so that I said what I thought. <laughs> so I would say this. Yes, the schools are controlled by people with ideas inimical to freedom and Western civilization and what we see in the scriptures that appeal to Rome like Saul or Paul. But here's what I'm going to say. You don't have to sit there and blindly go off the cliff with the lemmings. We do have ideas and we can think for ourselves and we can say something. I wasn't even a Christian when I was doing that. They can't make you sit there and have your mind controlled and stand up for what you know to be right and speak your mind, speak your ideas, and maybe somebody can correct you. That's okay, too. So anyhow, that was my taste of Western civilization. You're trying so hard to move on, and I almost hate to even bring this up, but this is such a good topic. Uh, last Friday night, I went up to St. Cloud where Usama Dakdak was speaking about Islam at a church up there, uh, Granite City Baptist Church, and there was a mob uh, out in front, as there always is with Usama Dakdak. And Usama Dakdak, Usama Dakdak, I have to work on the pronunciation, uh, he always goes out and asks people and invites them to come in and hear the talk, or he asks if he can talk to them. They always refuse. And the mob out there consisted of several Catholic nuns. Uh, there were several what we would call fake Christians. And they were out there with their signs, and, and, and they had people driving by, honking their horns, trying to make noise, you know. They were peaceful because, of course, there's law. There is rule of law. But So we had our meeting in there, and it was fascinating and very interesting. But there was one young man, a 17-year-old uh, boy, that I know who went out and put up a sign. It was raining, by the way. And he went out and he preached to them. <laughs> and what he preached, you would think of it as rather harsh. But he, I, I've heard it said that if they won't accept, if people who are unbelievers won't accept God's grace, you have to leave them with God's law. They will be judged, and you have to warn them about that. And so he, this young man went out, and, and he did a good job. I mean, it was probably a little shocking, some of the things that he said. But, uh, you know, because what I think of with what you were saying up here um, is, when's the last time you saw a Christian mob? In other words, this was a mob, but these were not Christians. These were people who go to various denominational churches, but, um, yeah. you know, they, don't, they did not want to hear. Yeah, Jesus said, if you continue my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My dear, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, we do have the truth. We don't need violence. We don't need hyper-emotion. We don't need to scream. We don't need to throw stones. We need to calmly speak the truth in love and just keep doing it the truth is powerful I told you the story when I was converted at this feed plant the people the co-workers some of them turned against me and it just would hated me it shouted at me 
And one evening, we were there loading a truck, and a bunch of them just tore into me for being a Christian. They were really nasty. And I just said, well, uh, yeah, I, I serve Christ, but let's get this truck loaded or whatever. In the year 2000, I was back for a school reunion for all classes. And I think I told you, I'm standing there at the picnic talking to somebody right across from Diane's dad's house. That's where they had the picnic. Here comes this big farmer plowboy, big guy. He says, are you Bob? Yep. He says, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, go ahead. He said, I have to apologize to you. And I said, why? Because I don't remember anything you ever did to me. He says, remember us guys that were yelling at you and, and mistreating you at that loading dock at the big fort? That's the name of the feed company. I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. He says, well, I was one of them. And I'm sorry. Now I'm a Christian. And thank you for standing there telling us the truth. Forty years later, or whatever, no, 30 years later, whatever. So, dear ones, the truth is powerful. Who would have thought this guy would become one of us? This Mr. Saul here, right? You don't know. We have the truth. We need to be on the side of being civilized. The rule of law, the truth, and ideas that will stand their own. We need to debate in the world of ideas and bring the gospel. Acts 7.59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He believed in the deity of Christ. And he's like Jesus. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. This is an illusion. Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. When there's nowhere else left to go, Christians appeal to God. Dear Lord, I guess I'm coming to see you. I almost did it three times in the last four years. I almost ended up with Jesus. I saw that I, uh, a year ago, April, They thought I for sure was going to die, but I didn't. So I know what it's like when all you can do is say, okay, Jesus, here I am. But the Lord kept me here, so here I am. I have not been in the hospital for a year. But in Stephen's case, he did go to be with Jesus, Acts 760, and falling to his knees, and they're, remember, they're pelting him. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Think about it. 
he never got to preach the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because they started screaming and covering their ears and rushing on him. Preachers in Luke Acts preach forgiveness of sins. Jesus did. Peter did. Paul will. And Stephen couldn't do that because they weren't listening. Their hands were over their ears and they were screaming. But they had to take their hands off their ears to grab the stones. Right? And now they now they got work to do. They got to stone him. He's got an opportunity where they might listen. And so they hear about the Christian doctrine of forgiveness from Stephen's mouth as he's dying. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Luke 23, 34. This is a echo of Jesus. But Jesus was saying, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they're doing. Forgive them. They hear about forgiveness, but they need to repent to receive it. One more slide. Acts 8, 1a. Saul, who we just heard about, was in hearty agreement. It's a strong word in the Greek with putting him to death. He didn't just conveniently hold garments, but he endorsed their evil actions. I have a note here about Paul and some of these who debated Stephen from Cecilia, Cilicia. It says in Acts 22.3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And that reminds us of Acts 6.9. Paul later says about himself, Acts 22.20, And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Saul, the angry, hard-hearted enemy of Christ, later becomes converted. He's one of the great preachers in the book of Acts, and he wrote a lot of our New Testament. He was as hard-hearted as these others. Hearty agreement, suna dokeo, implies taking pleasure, taking pleasure. We all know some people that we think God can never change or doesn't seem like it. But we don't know, do we? We don't know the future. We don't know who God's going to forgive. We don't know. So we have to ask God to have grace to be like Stephen, to calmly speak the truth and stand for a witness of Christ whatever happens. I wish I was more calm. I'm getting that way in my old age. I tend to get riled up. I don't have enough voice anymore to get riled up. 
I speak softly or I don't speak at all. My dear Christian friends, thank you for allowing me to be sharing Luke Acts with you. And I appreciate that you love to learn and hear these things and come up with really good ideas. Starting in a few weeks when I'm back in Acts, we're going to start in Acts 8, and we're going to see how Acts 1-8 proceeds on to Samaria. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness that we are allowed to look into these things. Thank you for your dear witness, Stephen. Thank you that he was faithful to you, that you saved him from death eternally and gave him life with yourself. Help us, Lord, to be witnesses in the hostile worlds that we live in here. And may we continue to be standing for the gospel. Help us, Lord, and pray for Eric that you bless him and use him as he preaches the word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.